וגם אני פתאום רואה את Welcome to Kolo. This is your host, Rabbi Hill Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolo. And it's a great honor and privilege to bring to you our next episode featuring Drs. David and Miriam Portman. This is really an incredible story, an incredible journey to hear how they got involved with the research to try to help women who are battling breast cancer. You're going to learn a lot of things that if you're not an MD, you didn't know before. It's um, going to be Very inspiring to hear how they got involved in this and really how personal it was to them as well. Um, and we're also going to discuss a few things that really every single person should know as it pertains to women's health. Uh, in the middle of the episode, we're going to be joined by our dear friend, Dr. Justin Weprin, to ask a few questions. I wanted someone who knows a little bit more about medicine than myself, which is not saying much, but someone like... Justin, who's an OBGYN, to come on and maybe ask a couple questions from his uh, standpoint as well. So we're going to see him somewhere come up in the middle of the episode. Don't worry. You'll know when. And also like to thank our media sponsor, Columbus Jewish News, who is our media sponsor for Colotes. So again, thanks to the great team over there. That's Steve Pinsky, Stephen Langle, Kevin Edelstein, and everyone else who I may be forgetting. But thank you to Columbus Jewish News for being our media sponsor. But without any further ado, let me tell you about our guests. David Portman is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer and Principal Investigator for the Phase 2 and 3 Lasofoxifene trials and a consultant during drug development. Dr. David Portman has experience in all stages of the regulatory approval process and has worked with the FDA on numerous pre-approval and approval meetings, advisory committees, and submission and approval considerations. He has worked with the medical, marketing, launch, and sales aspects of many products in the women's healthcare space. Dr. Miriam Portman is the Chief Operating Officer. She was the co-founder of the Columbus Center for Women's Health Research, which she, which she oversaw the day-to-day operations of the research center for 18 years. In addition to being the clinical research site manager, Dr. Portman was a sub-investigator for the research studies, including the Phase 2 and 3 Lasofoxifene trials. First of all, Drs. David and Miriam Portman, thank you so much for joining Colotes. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. So I want to ask you, for starters, how did the two of you get into this arena, this area of women's health? Um, well, I'm an uh, MD uh, by training in OBGYN. So, you know, obviously my background is in uh, providing uh, health care for women uh, and spent quite a bit of my career not only taking care of patients, but also doing clinical research largely sponsored research uh, from pharmaceutical companies developing therapies to, to help um, advance women's health. I'll let Miriam tell you a little bit about um, her background because that really was also critical in our founding uh, a private research center, which is not something one does every day, uh, but she uh, certainly uh, can tell you how that, uh, that occurred for us. 
Right. So I don't know if you know, Rabbi, but um, one of six children, the, actually the youngest of six children, um, five of whom have become physicians. So five out of six. And you're kind of wondering, how did that happen? Um, well, so we we grew up um, in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I was the youngest and um, our father passed away when I was eight years old. So left my mother, single mom, six children. And um, we also had an uncle in Dayton, um, Uncle Herman, who you might know, Herman Abramowitz, who was a family doctor. So those, I think, two factors kind of influenced us. One is having this uncle that we were very close to. We all worked with in his practice in our summer vacations when we were growing up. Um, and also having a, our father pass away at a, such a young age. He was 47 of a heart attack. Um, were very uh, was very um, impactful in us, you know, pursuing the career of medicine. Um, my eldest sister Elaine was the first, and she went to Ohio State Medical School and kind of like you know set the path for the rest of us. And um, she ended up becoming a clinical child psychiatrist here in Columbus. And I don't know if you know it, but she um, passed away also at the age of forty seven from metastatic breast cancer. So her memory is um, something that we think about a lot. Um, We actually named the clinical trials that we're currently doing the Elaine trials um, in metastatic breast cancer. So um, that's been very um, instrumental in um, pursuing this field. Wow. Wow. Yeah, go ahead. So no, so I was just going to say that, um, you know, a little bit of my background as well, um, deep roots uh, in the Columbus medical community. I'm a third generation uh, physician. My grandfather graduated from Ohio State Medical School. Uh, it'll be 100 years next year, uh, 100 years ago uh, in uh, 1923. Uh, my father also um, an OBGYN graduate of Ohio State. So uh, we, we both come from very medical families. Um, as I mentioned, we uh, I ran a practice, uh, but always had a, a keen interest in the most cutting edge science and stayed up to date on, on the medical literature. Uh, and when the opportunity arose to do clinical trials in my office, um, Miriam had actually had some experience doing those kinds of <clears throat> trials uh, with her older brother, who was a cardiology researcher. Uh, who had also founded a, a research center. So we, we had good mentors to, to lead the way for us to know how this process worked. Um, and other, other companies that we, I had worked with, I had seen uh, take uh, drugs that larger pharmaceutical companies had uh, lost interest in. Uh, and when after you know, doing 140 plus trials ourselves, one of the drugs that we studied, lazifoxifene, was available for in-licensing. Uh, so I flew out to San Diego and met with the company that uh, then held the rights to the drug, presented my case, said I was an expert in the, the area, in the field, had done lots of research, and I thought I could find a path forward for the drug. Uh, and the next thing I knew, we were the proud owners of a, um, of a compound, uh, and then we needed to build a company around that. And so for the last six years, uh, we've been forging ahead with uh, some new discoveries uh, for this very old uh, bone uh, bone drug, a drug for women with osteoporosis, which we've in fact discovered could be the best uh, in class drug for particular types of breast cancer. 
So that's a little bit of kind of the uh, the journey that we were on. It was largely based on on doing a lot of research for other companies and then deciding to throw our hat in the ring and found a company and do it ourselves. No, that's that's incredible. And I love how you attribute it um, to your background, your family and uh, relatives and uh, extended family who are in this that are kind of um, helping um, you in this journey. I want to ask you if you could share with us, uh, simple folks, some of the general data that an everyday person should know as it relates as it pertains to women's health. What are some of the uh, numbers, some of the risks that really kind of really make the regular person appreciate what you guys do? Well, as you, you heard Miriam's sister, Elaine, uh, we lost at a very young age to advanced breast cancer. Uh, breast cancer, which is our area of research interest currently, uh, affects uh, close to one in eight women in their lifetime. So it is the most common tumor among women, and it's the second leading cause of cancer death among women. So it's still a, a huge uh, unmet uh, challenge. Uh, there are currently therapies that can help uh, patients um, live with breast cancer, but unfortunately, once that cancer spreads beyond the breast, uh, say to the the liver or our bones or lungs, it's an unfortunately incurable disease. And right now, the the treatments, uh, while they can uh, help delay progression, often lead to uh, what we call resistance. And one of the causes of the resistance is the uh, development of a mutation. Uh, And our drug uh, in particular targets a specific mutation so that if patients can be detected as having that mutation, uh, we're hopeful uh, the drug that we're advancing might be a treatment of choice to help uh, delay or prevent that disease from uh, progressing. Wow. So it could be life-changing on a national level. This could be something that with Hashem's help could be saving who knows how many lives, one in eight women, supposedly, uh, potentially. Can you walk us through how did you come to that realization on that specific, I mean, am I pronouncing it right? Lasofoxifene? Very good. Very good. It usually <laughs> takes, a few, it. <laughs> takes a few tries. So um, how did you get to that? And what have you done with it so far? Yeah. So it's actually a very interesting uh, story. As, as Miriam mentioned, we, we've done a lot of women's health research. And when we acquired the drug, it was already very well studied as a, as a pretty good drug to prevent osteoporosis and treat uh, women who might be at risk for developing fractures uh, in menopause. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware that as, as one ages, the skeleton thins and there are treatments to prevent uh, bone loss and fracture. So that was our area uh, of expertise. And we actually thought uh, for the first year of uh, working on this, that that was what we were going to do is continue to be women's health researchers but about a year into our journey, um, I had a phone call with uh, a one of our advisors, who's a the head of molecular cancer research at Duke, uh, who uh, told me that they had recently seen in their lab that this compound of ours had unique properties against these mutations of the estrogen receptor, um, which is now you know what we're focused on. The reason. Why he actually looked at that uh, is also very much uh, a, you know, by, by, um, by chance and, and good fortune in that 30 years ago, he was a young scientist at the company that discovered lasofoxifene. So he had always had a little bit on his laboratory shelf. 
and just happened to have his research uh, assistant uh, use that drug in this experiment, and it performed better than all the other drugs they looked at. Uh, so lo and behold, just by chance um, in this conversation, we learned that uh, there was some new discoveries at Duke University that led us down this very unexpected path. So it was uh, you know, a year into a different approach uh, that we were having that led us to uh, pivot, as they say in the startup world, uh, to an area that has proven uh, very uh, promising. So can you tell us a little bit about your respective roles in this process? Because I'm sure it's, you know, research is huge, both in terms of what you're trying to accomplish and the resources poured into it and how you manage all the resources to make sure that you're making maximum impact and use of everything. So can you talk about your respective roles in this process? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll let uh, Miriam is the, the chief mm-hmm. operating officer. She, she tries to herd all the cats. Mm-hmm. So she can tell us, uh, tell you a little bit about our, our management structure. Uh, and then uh, I'm happy to comment. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm the chief operating officer, uh, which is a role that um, was kind of thrust upon me uh, when we started the company. Um, and, uh, something I, I've kind of grown with as, as years have gone and something I, I, I learned, I learned something new every day. It wasn't like I have a business background, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. Um, but I, I've learned a lot about, you know, financial spreadsheets and, um, you know, dealing with, um, you know, accounting and, um, all kinds of, you know, business stuff that I've, I've had to kind of learn on the go. Um, so, uh, yeah, we oversee a management team that's, vir- um, we're a virtual company at this point. We oversee management team mostly in the Philly area, um, is where we have most of our, um, rest of our management team. So we, you know, we meet over Zoom calls and on web conferences and, um, you know, we're running a company, you know, basically out of my basement office at this point. Um, but we are actually growing um, and we are planning on having a headquarters uh, in the coming weeks, downtown Columbus. So we're looking forward to, you know, getting out of the basement and finally getting an office. Um, but David and I actually do a lot of our work from the, the kitchen table, the dining room table. We take a lot of calls um, and, um, you know, kind of, you know, strategize our day. Um, and, you know, fortunately, Dave and I have a lot of experience working together. We ran a research center for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, people are always amazed that, you know, you can, we can work together, but, you know, we, that's in the questions, by the way, (laughs) we have a, a, a good, a good working relationship as well as a, as a, as a marriage. So we, um, we, 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 um, we help each other, you know, his strengths and, and my strengths, you know, we, we work together well. Um, and um, I feel like it's, uh, it, that's what's led to our success is that we have a, um, we, we complement each other. Beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, as Miriam said, you know, we're running uh, a global uh, drug development program. We have uh, patients who've been enrolled all over the U.S., uh, Canada, as well as Israel. Uh, the next trials will certainly expand beyond that. Uh, so we really do need to to oversee a lot of um, partners and uh, and vendors. So uh, we have drug manufacturers uh, in uh, New York and in, um, in North Carolina. We work with labs uh, at the University of Chicago and Duke, uh, Utah, and uh, and and um, uh, as well as Pittsburgh, uh, and then. 
you know, we have regulatory uh, assistance and a slew of lawyers who, uh, you know, make sure that we, you know, go by the books, because as you can imagine, drug development is a highly regulated field. So while, you know, we're a small team, we really do lean on a lot of experts, um, you know, in our management team, we have uh, people that have worked for decades at uh, Wyeth and Pfizer and AstraZeneca. So uh, even though we don't have uh, global pharma backgrounds, uh, uh, we have experience in doing clinical trials for those kinds of companies. A lot of our management uh, team uh, have decades of, uh, of expertise uh, in this uh, area. Wow. Now that, that is amazing. And I, you know, for the everyday person that hears about different cancer research, when they don't look into it properly, it's very, and very superficial. They see millions and millions of dollars being poured in countless hours. And unfortunately, sometimes they think to themselves, what is this doing already? And when will something come about? Like, why are we doing that? I want, I want to know if you could talk to that person and say why this is so important, what we have done and what we are looking to do. And this, this is why spending all these resources are so important. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, you know, a fantastic question. And it's really a challenge uh, in drug development, uh, given that the majority of new compounds that are investigated never uh, get approved for any use. Uh, so there's a lot of trial and error. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of failure. Uh, and that's one of the, the big risks we took uh, in, uh, in kind of uh, this endeavor is that, you know, going up against the odds, knowing that uh, a lot of drugs uh, just simply uh, fail to get over the finish line. Uh, and that takes a, a, a long time, right? So we, we discovered this um, activity in breast cancer uh, in advanced uh, resistant breast cancer about six years ago. Uh, we've just completed enrollment in our phase two trials. Uh, so it just kind of gives you an idea that, you know, six years uh, to start to get some clinical data uh, is, is what it takes uh, often. Uh, and while we're a pretty lean startup, um, you know, we've still at this point had to raise close to $75 million to get to this point. And it takes a lot more capital uh, to even move it further along with larger studies and then to, uh, to be able to market uh, that uh, drug to the broad medical community. So when they say it takes, uh, you know, on average a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, when you uh, take into consideration all the failures, you can see, you know, why that is uh, such a, a costly uh, endeavor. But without that uh, kind of risk-taking uh, and investment, uh, we really wouldn't be making any advances. We can, I think everybody's aware of the advances that were made with uh, COVID and the vaccine and therapeutics. They got a real chance to see how phase two and three uh, programs can change lives and even the, the health of the world. Uh, and so it's these, these kinds of um, investments and, uh, and risk-taking that lead, we hope, to, uh, to further advancement of everybody's health. That's beautiful. So now I want to ask you about some of your failures, if you will. What are some of the setbacks that you've had in this process? How did it affect you and how did you recover? Do you want to um, no, take go, that? No, go ahead. 
<laughs> I'll start uh, with mine if you want, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. no. As um, you know, we we originally uh, acquired this uh, drug thinking that we could uh, get the FDA to reconsider uh, their original decisions around um, Pfizer's program, right? So we we acquired this drug. Uh, after Pfizer decided to walk away from uh, it as an osteoporosis drug. Uh, but I had been working with a lot of other uh, similar compounds and felt we had some very good arguments uh, to, to try to get uh, them to uh, accept an alternative strategy. Uh, and after about a year um, of banging our heads against the wall and getting no's uh, from the FDA, we realized that you know, that was simply not going to work. Um, so that was, you know, a, a fairly big uh, failure on our part that, you know, we, we thought we had good case to make uh, that we could resurrect uh, the drug for its or- original intended indication. Uh, and after uh, getting very vociferous no's from the FDA, we realized that uh, we needed to find another path. Uh, and as I mentioned, that path really uh, fell into our lap with the discovery at Duke, uh, which really resur- uh, resurrected and saved uh, our program. Uh, because if if it wasn't for that discovery, uh, it, we probably couldn't have advanced uh, the compound. So uh, that was a big, um, a, a, you know, a, a big challenge for us. Um, you know, we went in thinking confidently that we had uh, a very good case to make that the drug should be um, approved uh, for the broader population to help them with their bone health. Uh, but uh, the FDA simply said, uh, nope, we said no before, we're saying no again. Uh, and that was about a year of uh, about a year and a few million dollars worth of uh, investment uh, in you know regulatory counseling and intellectual property um, uh, pursuits. Uh, and then we really, at that point, doubled down and said, we found a new path. Uh, and that path has proven to be far more open uh, for us. Well, we, also had, we also had challenges in raising capital uh, when we were just simply going to say, well, we can do what Pfizer didn't. Uh, and so we got a lot of no's uh, from investors. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, when one door closes, others open. And when we found the new opportunity in resistant breast cancer, uh, the investment community was far more interested in that than us, um, you know, re- repurposing an old indication. No, I love that. How you said when one door closes, the other one opens, that's a great, you know, it's sales 101 in, in a certain sense that no is that just that guy, but the next guy could be yes. Um, before I turn it over, we have with us Dr. Weprin, um, another um, OBGYN. I want to ask you one last question before I turn it over. Did you ever think about trying to like lobby and, you know, go to Washington to get laws passed or sponsor bills or, or whatever it is to try to circumvent what the FDA is telling you? Did you think about going down that route or nah, not worth it? Well, well I've actually I, I presented other companies drugs before the FDA uh, in what's called a dispute resolution where you can actually dispute uh, the FDA's decisions. So we gave that some serious thought. We thought we would go back and say, we beg to differ. We think that this decision was wrong and we're going to pursue, you know, that legal recourse. People don't realize that you, you know, you can actually dispute it. It's not easy, but it can be done. Uh, And that was what we were thinking about doing. Uh, But when we realized that we had a different path, uh, we didn't have to go down that route. Um, uh, But you're right. There's, you know, obviously if you, there's something that you feel you can argue for, 
uh, you keep doing it uh, until you've exhausted all options. But uh, fortunately, we didn't have to go that that route. Wow, amazing, Justin. I have a, a couple very basic questions. Um, I guess my my, and I, I don't know if you've covered this or not, but ultimately, you know, I think people people think it's easy to take a drug to you know from start to finish. They think it's easy, especially with, with what happened with like the vaccines and everyone seemed to think it was so, you know, getting things approved is very, very, very challenging. I was hoping you could kind of just kind of walk us through at least the process um, in a very basic way for people that don't have any medical background. I don't know if that's something that you guys covered or not, but I think it would be interesting to, for people to, to hear well, what we, you had to go through. Yeah, no, we mentioned the, you know, the, the time it takes and the capital it takes, but uh, you know, first of all, you can't uh, begin, um, you know, a, a clinical trial unless you have a huge amount of data in uh, animal models uh, to show that there's no toxicology or, uh, or, or the drug's not going to cause cancer or, you know, do anything in an animal model. So a lot of that research takes uh, years to just make sure that the drug is safe uh, before you even get into humans. We were fortunate and a lot of that work was done by the previous sponsor. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, we didn't have to do year-long toxicology studies, but every drug before it's studied uh, in humans has to go through that. So we have that, we had that data. We had to do other animal experiments to show that it could work in the cancers that we chose to study. Uh, we had to manufacture the drug uh, under good manufacturing uh, practice uh, before you can even open up what's called an investigational new drug application or an IND. So at great risk, we had to go ahead and manufacture enough drug supply that we could tell the FDA we have a pure drug uh, that has been tested in animals that's safe, uh, even before one single human sees a dose. Uh, so that process took us several years just to get to um, so uh, we had to raise capital to actually manufacture a drug that we had to convince our investors could potentially work based on some experiments that we had done uh, in animals. Uh, and then typically you do phase one studies, which tell you what doses might be uh, safe in humans. Uh, phase two studies then can kind of uh, optimize the dose and see whether or not it's effective. And then ultimately, the phase three study is a larger study to show uh, that the safety and efficacy is is worth uh, the um, the benefit and doesn't have a significant risk. Uh, and that process usually takes uh, about ten years uh, for a drug from discovery to approval, and often uh, longer. Um, and uh, as we mentioned, we've been at this now in breast cancer for six years. Uh, and finishing up our phase two trials, which we hope could potentially lead to approval. Um, our phase two data will be uh, presented to the FDA this year. And oftentimes with a, uh, a, a an area that's su- such an unmet need, they may choose to approve you in an accelerated fashion with phase two data. Uh, but that's a little bit about what goes into you know, every drug uh, that anybody ever takes off their uh, medicine cabinet had to go through. So just a quick question to follow that up. Um, you know, everyone was like very concerned about the vaccines and how they quickly, they got, you know, pushed through. Do you, knowing what you know, going through this process, do you feel like 
they did it in the safest way possible possible having an unlimited capital would that have changed the process or the speed at which it got approved you want to take that it's okay um, so um you know i have great faith in in the regulators i mean they are very cautious uh they're very reluctant to put things out there that they think will jeopardize uh the general uh public welfare and health uh so i, I think that um, there shouldn't be too much suspicion. Um, obviously, you need to weigh your individual risks uh, and the benefits that you get from any treatment. Uh, but given the the path that I just uh, ex- explained, most drugs, uh, you know, go through this incredibly rigorous process. Uh, the fact that they accelerated that um, with the vaccines and the therapeutics was simply because of the global emergency that we were facing. Um, we could probably do that with a lot of drugs, um, uh, but uh, a lot of this is done in stages. So you don't move from phase uh, one to scaling up your manufacturing for commercial purposes because of the high probability of failure, right? So we've done things in a very piecemeal way, right? We'll make enough drug to do our studies, but we certainly weren't going to make enough drug to sell to the world. Um, now, if somebody would advance us the capital to scale up and have the drug ready to go out the door the day uh, that, you know, we thought we would get approved, then that would certainly speed things up. Uh, But these are all done uh, based on where your risk currently is in your program. Thank you. One, one more question. Uh, This is kind of to shift gears. Um, You know, as a fellow OBGYN, um, I see you more as like a mentor to me. Um, and I'm just curious, um, you know, how you were able to make this big, big transition. Um, you basically reinvented yourself and it seems extremely stressful to me. Um, and I'm just, what, what would you say, um, I guess, advice you have for maybe people that are looking into, you know, changing career paths or what was it, what was your, you know, well, you know, it's it, it it's not something that happened, you know, with the snap of fingers. I mean, I, I, you know, we had mentioned earlier, uh, Miriam had had some significant experience in doing clinical research uh, through her brother. We started a research center as part of uh, a medical practice. And when I was doing that, um, I also, uh, you know, became somewhat of an expert in my field, was able to publish um, some of that research and it uh, to conferences across the country and, and had a reputation for in the, you know, the field of developing uh, therapies for women's health, not so much as a company, but as a, uh, as a key opinion leader. Um, And I think it was that um, experience. And then also working for other uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, giving them advice on how to uh, develop their drugs and design their studies and go with them to FDA meetings that ultimately I, you know, it might've been a little foolish. I didn't realize what we were getting into. And I, Miriam and I always kind of say, had we known how hard it was, I'm not sure we would have done that. So it was a little bit of our, our naivete that kind of led us to take that leap, but it was a little bit of uh, having enough information to think we could do it. And not so much that we would have been overwhelmed by uh, what we were uh, about to face. Um, you know, as she said, we had 
we didn't know about, you know, hiring a contract drug manufacturing group or hiring intellectual property lawyers um, or, you know, working with, um, you know, animal experiments and that kind of thing. That was all, you know, things that we just had to, uh, as they often say, is that we were uh, learning to fly as we were building the uh, airplane. Do you feel like you have an advantage because you're a, a physician? Yeah, I go. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I feel like I'm at a disadvantage because I don't have an MBA. Um, mm. you know, we talk to a lot of you know business folks and lawyers, and um, you know, it just sometimes you have to learn a whole new language. Uh, I'm still learning. You know, like I said, I learn. I learn something new every day. Um, I mean, I think having a, a medical background certainly helps. But, you know, in this, in the world of like VC funds, you know, being a doctor is just sort of being cute. You know, it's like there's, there's some, you know, really um, smart, talented um, people out there um, that, you know, we've had to, you know, kind of, you know, find our way. I think that we, you know, having taken care of patients, though, uh, we understand uh, what uh, those concerns are. So I think if you look at people who come at this from a a pure science background or a pure business background, I don't think, you know, if they've never taken care of a patient, they don't know what really concerns them. Um, You know, from our our drug standpoint, there's a lot of other drugs looking in the same uh, space but they all don't seem to really be as well tolerated as our drug. And I think the fact that I've taken care of a lot of patients and I know that the only uh, good drug is one that they tolerate and stay on uh, is something that has given us an advantage um, or patient centric. Well, that's great. And you said that something about if you knew what you were going to go through, you may not have gone in. I, I've heard that before with other people that have, accomplished world changing uh initiatives one of which i have in my office this copy of the art scroll gemara rabbi zlodowitz of blessed memory said if he knew how hard it would be to translate the talmud he would never have gotten involved never have done it and today it's in every synagogue so hopefully uh you'll be following a similar path in your field as well my very last question um before we wrap up and you kind of alluded to it before but i wanted you to elaborate a little more um, most of the time, I think, uh, Justin, you'll agree with me. Most guys don't want their wives in their office. Um, they want there to be a little bit of a separation of work and home. Um, it, you know, it's, I could just see so many people saying, honey, I love you. And I want it to stay that way. So I do this, you do that. And it'll be great. But you guys did the exact opposite. Literally. Can you tell us a little bit of how that has impacted you personally? I say one of the 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 problems of the fact that we work together is that we never stop working you know it's I feel like you know we constantly and our kids will say the same thing we constantly talk about work you know like 24 7 I mean thank god for Shabbos right um so it's that is one of the problems is that we don't we have a hard time separating you know work day and like not work day um and, and as Miriam said, I think we both kind of acknowledge uh, each other's strengths. Um, I think she's great at, you know, she's the chief operating officer. And so from a operation and execution organizational standpoint, uh, she does a great job. I am more of a big picture person. 
which fits, you know, my role as CEO well. Uh, and I think we, you know, just and, and in life uh, and in our work, we just recognize and hopefully uh, amplify each other's strengths and maybe uh, help, uh, you know, where there are weaknesses. Uh, so it's very much complementary. And, you know, working for uh, close to 20 years uh, in the office and in a research center gave us that uh, experience. And it's just uh, carried over to what we're doing now. Uh, we're very, very fortunate in that regard. Yeah. What, what made me so interested in having the two of you on together is I was taking a course by John Gottman, who's this you know marriage guru who has a research center in Seattle called the Gottman Institute. And he has seven principles. And he basically figured out a way to predict um, divorce with 96% accuracy or something like that. And um, he has all these different principles and rules and metrics. It's, it's fascinating stuff. You could check it out, GottmanInstitute.com or something like that. And his seventh principle is shared meaning that couples who have a healthy, happy marriage have a shared meaning. And it sounds like from hearing from the two of you that you don't just have, um, you know, a, a life of, you know, sh- shared values, but it sounds like a shared mission. And that's really what uh, really spoke to me. We're going to be having hopefully another couple. Well, actually, last year we had on a singer, Yaakov Shweki, who has written songs for special needs children and his wife um, uh, runs a uh, a school for special needs children. Uh, so it's he talked about how the two have um, really helped one another. And it's, and it's really nice to see it in you as well. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I hope... Um, when the next trial or whatever it is um, goes, we'll be able to delve into that on a, maybe a take two episode, a second look. And um, may Hashem bless you with much Hatzlacha, with much success, helping women, helping families. And uh, as we began saying, saving one life is like saving the world. So may Hashem bless you to save many, many worlds. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.